now that I'm now that I know he is of the the world is a rat box school, I feel much more confident. Hi, and welcome to Meet Your Heroes. I'm Audrey, and I'm Elliot. And this is the show where we ignore the very good conventional wisdom to never meet your heroes and instead get up close and personal with the lesser known legacies and real life bad behavior of some of history's most notable and beloved people. Hello, Audrey. How are you doing? Hello, Elliot. I am doing just fine. Thank you for asking. I do not care how you're doing. I will not ask. You okay. Can't make me. <laughs> that's that checks out. That checks out. Uh, <laughs> that's fair. Uh, I have to say, today's episode is a meet and greet. Mm-hmm. It is for those of you who have not heard a meet and greet before. It is a shorter episode about some of the generally quirky things for our hero, who, unlike most heroes, may not actually be horrendous and terrible in all kinds of like unredeemable ways but still has a lesser known legacy that we think is worth sharing totally yeah i uh i really enjoyed the research for this one i i laughed a lot to myself quite a number of chuckles just full of chuckles i really enjoy the episodes where you tickle yourself (laughs) i think that's generally a good a good sign um i will say i feel like this hero in particular uh i am particularly interested in because I know a little bit about him. And I feel like I have a lot to learn in the realm of training animals, Mm -hmm. particularly because we have one bad dog at this point, and he definitely has an attitude problem and does not respect me and does not do anything I say. He doesn't respect you at all, but that's not a training issue. That's that's a... (laughs) Yeah, you do not command respect from this bad dog who has, in fact, been. I don't. You. So, to be fair, he he, has been, he was trying to fight another dog, and I got in the middle yeah, of it. So again, which is how, this is how you lose respect from a he dog. He wasn't coming after. <laughs> it's true. It's true. But but also like to the extent that we are hanging out on the couch, like you and I will be sitting mm-hmm. there. I will get up to get something, and this dog will just jump up on the couch and sit in my spot mm-hmm. and like look me dead ass in the eye mm-hmm. and be like, "What are you going to do about Nothing. it?" He knows you're not going to do nothing about it. You can't. He doesn't but respect I, you. I, no, but, but I do have something to do, and I do it every time, which is that I say, Audrey, can you please get this dog <laughs> off the couch? And then you do. This is true. And then I give him a seat. This is true. He's just, that's actually what you've trained him. You've, you have trained him to wait for me to get him off the couch. All right. Well, then let us look to history so I can learn the error of my ways. Audrey, who is this week's meet and greet hero? This week's hero is B.F. Skinner. So it sounds like you know a little bit about B.F. Skinner. Do you want to do you want to share with me the the highlights? What do you know? I know that B.F. Skinner is famous for the experiments in psychology he did mm-hmm. that revolved around training animals. Mm-hmm. So I know that he was conditioning them to respond a certain way when they heard a certain signal. And I know that B.F. in most other contexts stands for big fucking something. <laughs> so I'm going to assume. <laughs> big fucking Skinner <laughs> kind of energy he carried with him. Other than that, I'm quickly like devolving into the things that I'm speculating about, although okay. I feel pretty confident about those two facts. What if I told you his name was Burris? Burris? <laughs> Burris. B-U-R-R-H-U-S. Burris. 
B-U-R-H-U, Bur- like Burhus is what Burhus. it looks like? Yeah, Burhus Frederick Skinner. I, if you told me that, I would say I now know why he went by BF right. instead. <laughs> yes, that's the kind of name where you're like, I'm an initial guy. Thank you. I've never even heard of that name before. Not once. No, never once. All right, well, Burris, BF, was... Uh, all the things that you mentioned. He is known for his conditioning uh, experiments in psychology. He is the mm-hmm. father of behavioralism. Uh, behaviorism? Behavioralism. Behaviorism. Behavioralism. Yeah, that's right. I wrote it both ways. So could be one or the other. I feel like he was a behavioralismist, uh, which... <laughs> right. It rolls off the tongue. Yeah. It's a BF. It's a behavioralismist <laughs> Frederick Skinner. Mm-hmm. 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 All right. So father of behaviorism. Born March 20th, 1904. One of the few Pisces that we have. Ooh, I don't feel like we talk I, a lot about Pisces. I forgot Pisces was a thing. It's been so long. I can't even think of one. Erica Badu. She's a Pisces. Oh, I do. Okay, hold on. So, hold on. So, because of her music, Mm -hmm. that makes her a water sign. Am I right? Yeah, I think so. Pisces is fish. It's a fish. Yeah. Born underwater, right? Mm -hmm. In two dimes. What is the line? I don't know. Something like that. Yeah, you get it. You get it. It's from on and on. Look, despite what I say, against my will, this is sinking in, (laughs) and I resent it. I resent it, but I know much more about astrology than I ever wanted to. Or ever intended to. Well, let me tell you specifically about a March 20th birthday in Audrey's Astrology Corner. Being a Pisces born on March 20th, they are well known for their passionate and experimental nature. When they feel something is worthwhile, they do not hesitate to devote time and effort to pursuing it. They bring the same intensity to all matters of life, which is especially true for loved ones. Their family and friends always appreciate their dedication to their well-being. While many people only stick to what is familiar, they love new experiences and situations. They believe that almost everything is worth trying once. Sounds like he was into some weird sex stuff. (laughs) He could have been. I don't know. (laughs) I didn't get that deep. But you know what? Here's what we're going to do. We're going to look at three projects, little inventions, projects, things he's known for, a little bit lesser known. We're going to see what he's into. Before we do that, I'm going to give you just a brief background. The, the, you know, two-minute biography. He's born in Pennsylvania, upper-middle-class family. His family was very religious. But at an early age, Burris describes himself as an atheist. And this usually wouldn't matter, right? Like, but, do your thing. Yeah, do your thing. But it actually does kind of affect his life because he gets to college. And it's not, like, hip or cool to 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 say God is dead in the, like, 1920s. (laughs) Okay. Okay. So he gets to college, and he's like, hey, God's not real, and everybody's like, fuck you, Burris. And Mm -hmm. he has a hard time making friends, despite the fact that he's, like, very extroverted. He is very social. He's um, also has this sort of, like, relentless energy about him. He doesn't really fit in, but he goes to college, and he tries to be a writer. He's like, I like writing. Writing does not like him back. He moves back in with his parents and he tries to write a novel. Robert Frost, he actually knows somehow. His family's like upper middle class, kind of connected. Robert Frost encourages him. He's like, okay, be a writer. It's thankless work. It's going to take a long time. You probably won't be good at first, but if you're going to do it, do it. And you'd have to say, 
if you're going to be a writer, one of the most writerly things you can do is be poor and move back in with your parents. Right. So he's like on the right track he's in terms right of track. like the lifestyle. He tries to write a novel. He he can't get it off the ground. He later concluded that he was unsuccessful because he had neither any world experience nor a unique point of view as an early 20-something. Well, okay. Welcome to your 20s. Yes, most 20-year-olds, that is, that is the case. But the thing about 20-year-olds is we really do think we have a unique point of view. We really do. If you're going to be a writer, you have to have the hubris to be like, out as a 23-year-old, I have a unique point of view the world needs to hear. Okay, yes. Yeah, I mean, that is that is what gets you through, th- being like, I have something that other people care about enough. Yeah. And uh, almost never the case. Never the frankly. case. Frankly. Was not the case for <laughs> Almost him. never the case. No. <laughs> not the case. Not the case for him. Right. So he decides he's going to go back to school, and he's going to start studying this this burgeoning field of science. And this this field of science is obviously psychology. And psychology at the time is only like forty or fifty years old as a science, but it's still very. What year? We're in the like nineteen twenties, nineteen thirties, because he's born okay. in, in okay. um nineteen o four. So in his like mid to late twenties, it's it's a relatively new field of science. Basically, like it's said that psychology as a science is started around like eighteen eighties. Obviously, people been thinking they know what's going on with psychology for as long as humans have been around. Just go listen to Aristotle episode. But as a practice, as something that is studied in school, is taught in school, is a career path, it's relatively new. He goes to Harvard, and this is where his life really starts to pick up momentum. So if you can believe it, he shows up and he is at Harvard and he's like, listen, your psychology department is bullshit. Like, this isn't (laughs) science. This is not objective enough. Like, you all are just talking about, like, what you think is happening inside of brain, inside the brain, right? And really, at this point, they're just giving people cocaine and asking them if they want to fuck their moms. I mean, it's like, that's really what psychology was. If you listen to Freud episode, (laughs) that's that's really not that far off. That was basically the practice. Uh, Okay. Which, again, makes for interesting parties, Uh, for sure. Great. It's great. But less less successful as an objective science. Yeah. So he says, I'm gonna I'm going to whip this science into shape and I am going to create a system. All of it's gonna be observable, all of it's going to be objective. He sets out to build this this system where he can observe behavior based on external elements. And he designs these experiments make this shit measurable, and he built what we now call the Skinner box. Does not sound appealing. He hated that term. <laughs> the Skinner box? <laughs> he hated it. <laughs> okay. Why did he coin it then? He didn't. He preferred to call it the not less worse operant conditioning chamber. <laughs> oh. Rolls off the tongue. <laughs> Both of those make this device seem absolutely horrifying. But this is really what he's known for. This is, you know, the box with the rats. They pull a lever. They get a treat. All conditioning behavior based on um, what he calls operants. And those are neutral operants, which are, you know, neutral responses from the environment. They have a benign effect on behavior. There's reinforcers, which are positive responses that increase the likelihood of a behavior's repetition. And then there's punishers or negative reinforcement, which decreases the likelihood of a behavior's repetition. 
Okay, so you just said the words rat box and then went real scientific. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so could, yeah. you, could you could you meet us somewhere in the middle between rat box and uh, <laughs> and and whatever jargon you just used? No, you, I, I'm ha- I'm struggling to picture this thing. Okay, no, I can't actually. So get smarter. No, I'm just joking. It's a box. <laughs> okay. Um, where inside the box there... Uh, sorry, not box, operant conditioning chamber, chamber. if you will. Yep. <laughs> you would place an animal, at this point it's rats, first experiments it's rats, and when the rat, for example, presses the right lever, it gets a pellet. If it doesn't press the lever, it doesn't get the pellet. So that's negative reinforcement because the absence of the positive behavior mm-hmm. means that they learn like, oh, if I want the treat, I have to have the... I have to press a lever. Later, there are, are ones where, like, basically they have to just not touch the shock. And if they don't touch the shock, <laughs> then they get the treat. They don't get shocked? Or, okay. yeah, th- at first they don't get shocked, but then they get the treat. It's all of these systems set up to see, like, how can you reinforce specific behaviors? So psychology, we think about it as, like, a person on a couch type thing. And yes. he's like, no, 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 that's too bullshitty for me. Yes. He's like, I'm going to put a rat in a box. Yep. And... I'm going to ding a bell Mm -hmm. and then I'm going to shock the rat. But eventually if I ding the bell and the rat moves, it won't get shocked. Mm -hmm. That is science. That is, that is what you should be studying. Yeah. So again, this is all in the the behavioralism field of psychology. So it's, it's um, not, it has nothing to do with thoughts and feelings. He honestly thought thoughts and feelings were fake and should be ignored. And he was like, (laughs) basically, fuck your feelings, quite literally, (laughs) anything you need to know about a person or any like thing you want to change about a person, the only thing you have to do is change the environment. You'll change the behavior. You can modify an entire person's life. He he point blank says like free will is a myth. Everything is determined by a person's environment and all of these operants, all of these different um, conditioning elements. So he's like, in your life, if you're sad or have bad habits mm-hmm. you're basically just a very complicated you're just a rat in a very complicated rat box yes and it's something about the world around you that says doesn't matter what you think or feel that's all bullshit it's just you got to get a different rat box different or else your life's box. always going to be the same yes okay yeah okay thank you for uh simplifying that for folks from my already simple and unintelligible explanation of operant conditioning now that I'm now that I know he is of the the world is a rat box school, I feel much more confident. <laughs> the world is a rat box. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you're making him sound pretty good for so far. I'll be honest. He, he seems like he's got a lot figured out. Okay, quirky dude. All right, so that's the background. This is where this is where we're starting. If you can believe it, he's not like super warm and fuzzy. He's apparently like. Not the worst person to be around. He's pleasant. He's gregarious. Like I said, he's very extroverted, but he's not of the soft science. Yeah. Shocking rats for, <laughs> for science. Well, he doesn't really shock a bunch of them. He, you know, he's, he needs these rats to like him. He spends the rest of his career <laughs> after this Skinner boxy conditioning chamber, sort of digging deeper and deeper into these ideas, expanding the experiment. It's all very theoretical, though. He doesn't really take a ton of this and apply it to human beings. Was all this background until now? Yes. Are we getting into our our fun facts? All that was background till now. Okay. Some of that was fun facts, though. You have to admit. (laughs) I do. Yeah, it was. It was. was. Yeah. You can't say that that wasn't fun. No, it's true. It's true. Um, And yeah, um, less shocking. In fact, what I realize now, he's not just a 
the rat box man, mm-hmm. but he's a rat box and giving them rat treats, yeah. which is Another thing one of our house. favorite, <laughs> one of our favorite pastimes. So just to be clear, um, rat treats in our house. What happens is that we have some cats and around 10 PM every day, uh, they will have eaten dinner already, but be bored. And they will know that Audrey is easily manipulable, not by humans, but by animals. Mm-hmm. So they will come and find her and meow and purr and like swat at her. And she's like, okay, fine, fine, fine. You get your treats. And we will get like little cat treats, like the little, you know, it's yeah, like, cat treats. you know, people know what cat treats are. Okay. Little cat treats. And so then if it was me, right, what <laughs> I would do is I would just like take some out and give some to a cat and take some out and give some to the other cat. But no, Audrey's like, that's not interesting. That's not fun for them. So Audrey will just take the cat treats and just like start sprinkling them all over the kitchen, like from chest height, just like tossing them out of the bag onto the floor and they go everywhere. And, and the idea I think is that you think, oh, this is fun for them because they have to like hunt and find them. Mm -hmm. But inevitably, some of them are going to not get found by the cats. Some of them are going to like fall down the grates of the air conditioning and the heat or something. And at that point, they go from being cat treats to being rat treats. Because now we are just feeding whatever critters are hiding in the walls and fighting them in. So rat treats as a principle uh, doesn't seem like a good idea. And here's this man making a whole career off of rat treats, which I got to say... Uh, yeah, not not too shabby. Not too shabby. One of the first. <laughs> One of the first. Long legacy of rat treats in this episode. Mm-hmm. Yes. Well, now let's talk about the fun facts of, of Burris. Let's start with the first one. So, one, we've already talked about the Skinner box. Rat treats covered it. Now, let's talk about the baby box. The baby box. That's a okay. good reaction, yes. Or as- Let me hope. It's bigger than the rat box, just a little at least. <laughs> well, my man Burris, again, did not like it to be called the baby box. He preferred <laughs> the baby tender. The baby tender? This man can't name like a, shit. Don't no. name anything. <laughs> Sounds like a meat tenderizer for babies. Right, spelled the same way. Um, okay, so you're like, what is a baby box? Let me tell you. It is an easily cleaned... Temperature and humidity controlled box bed intended to replace the infant crib. It was a clear box with air holes and it was heated <laughs> so that the baby didn't need blankets. It was a, like a spacious compartment. It was mounted on a wheeled table, had a large glass window. It was temperature and air controlled. Like I said, the baby was put in there naked and it was kept in the presence of its mother. So it was like this wheeled incubator. With a naked baby in it, had a, a ceiling, walls, everything. Like clothes at the top. Yeah, clothes at the top. Just like imagine you go to the Natural History Museum and you see a snake mm-hmm. container like yeah. that on wheels. But but for a baby. For a baby. <laughs> <laughs> and so it had this like mattress in it, it had a, a strip of sheeting that was covered like on the canvas and it could be moved like at the doctor's office where you crank it, you know, like the paper. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And you would just like crank it and then wipe off that canvas. This would, you'd be able to clean it. And then the baby, rather than quote unquote suffering from excessive cover, i.e. wearing clothes, or from being wet, i.e. wearing a diaper, or simply being awake and alone, this baby could move freely in it. In a quote unquote optimally stable atmosphere and in permanent visual contact with the mother. And the idea was like when the mom 
was too busy, they could put it in this box and they could tend to the chores around the house. So BF Uh invented this for his wife when they were having their second kid because she was like, you know what? Those first two years are bullshit and I hated it. And he was like, what if I put this baby in a box and you can dangle toys from the ceiling and it can just be naked? And she was like, that's a great idea. Thank you, Burris. Okay, so like a playpen for kids. I get that. Like, okay, you're busy. Yeah, (laughs) you know, you just need a place where the kid is not going to get into trouble. But like the fact that it's like closed off with air holes and then it's like, oh yeah, the baby should shit in this box and we'll just like turn this little crank and like put some new paper at the bottom. Like there's something that seems a a little less optimal about like, yeah, 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 this is a... this is this is kind of like a zoo exhibit. Yes, 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 yes. Right. But uh, just you know, human human exhibit. Why not? Right. Why not? So he wrote about this invention for the Ladies' Home Journal, October nineteen forty five edition. Um, I'm actually I'm, I'm going to put a link to the article in our social media. The unfortunate title of this article was "Baby in a Box," which BF was very <laughs> upset about because he thought it was negative press. The device had actually kind of a tiny bit of success. It sold like three hundred of them, and then like thirty years later. Some research department found 50 of the babies from the box and they were like, Hey, oh, how was your life? This is what life? I was wondering. This <laughs> is what I was like, wondering. I had a great life. Thank you. Like, <laughs> he, it, it didn't fuck them up. It didn't fuck them up. He was like, It's safer than other cribs, which is kind of a, a point. Like, cribs in the 40s were not tested for safety. <laughs> okay. Okay. And the baby could always see the mother, the mother could pick it up. It had toys to play with. I don't know. It it seems very sterile and weird, and I certainly wouldn't do mm-hmm. it. But it did not have a negative effect on the on the lives of at least fifty of the three hundred children. Okay, okay, that seems like a reasonable sample. Um, Public hated yeah, it. I, I, they hated it. Yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> I can imagine why. But also, if you're not leaving the baby in there for like twelve hours a day, like if, if it's just like a place to put the baby down, sure, okay, fine. So like it's a it's a crib on wheels and. He's like, you have to use it naked. Okay, whatever. <laughs> um, it's air conditioned. Great. Yeah, it's is he's weird, but okay, he's not he's not totally wrong on this one. Not Fair totally enough. wrong. Point point Skinner. Right. Okay, so you can see this ingenuity, and this ingenuity is going to be really helpful when we talk about the second weird thing that he did. That ingenuity helped him convince the U.S. government to give him twenty five thousand dollars to train pigeons to pilot bombs. Oh, okay. (laughs) What? (laughs) Okay, here we go. Here's an excerpt from a Smithsonian Magazine article called B.F. Skinner's Pigeon Guided Rocket. Wow. (laughs) Pigeon pigeon Guided Rocket. I like, this is a great band name. Okay, keep going. Great band name. From this article, quote, Skinner had already used pigeons in his psychological research, training them to press levers for food. An obsessive inventor, he had been pondering weapons targeting systems one day when he saw a flock of birds maneuvering in formation in the sky. Skinner said, quote, suddenly I saw them as devices with excellent vision and extraordinary maneuverability. Could they not guide a missile? Was the answer to the problem waiting for me in my own backyard? Getting to work, Skinner decided on pigeons because of both their vision and unflappable behavior in chaotic conditions. (laughs) He built a nose cone for a missile fitted with three small electronic screens and three tiny pigeon cockpits. Onto the screens was projected an image of the ground in front of the rocket. He would train street pigeons to recognize a pattern of the target and to peck when they saw this target. And then when all three of them pecked, it was thought you could actually aim the missiles in that direction. As the pigeons pecked, 
cables harnessed in each one's head would <laughs> mechanically steer the missile until it finally reached its mark. <laughs> Alas, without an escape hatch, the bird would perish along with their target, making it a kamikaze mission. <laughs> what the hell? I'm trying to imagine a little pigeon caps hooked up to the wires, pecking and steering this thing. There's Just videos. like pulling the cables. There's videos. Yeah. Yeah. So despite successful demonstration to Congress of these trained pigeons. Wait, this works? He killed some pigeons like this? Uh, well, he, they didn't actually have, do the bomb. They didn't actually go for Like, they didn't give him bombs. They give him money to train pigeons to peck a screen. And, like, theoretically, if they all three pecked in unison in the right direction, then the bomb could be steered that direction. Steer that way. Okay, okay. okay. This this project is eventually terminated. And oh, you don't say. Okay. It's probably good we didn't let pigeons decide who to bomb. <laughs> Um, sure. There is a, an, a line from a biography.com article. Oh, man, this really got me. Okay. <laughs> Here's the line. While teaching at the University of Minnesota, Skinner tried to train pigeons to serve as guides for bombing runs during World War II. This project was canceled, yes. but he was able to teach them how to play ping pong. <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah. Just, Wait, but... But okay, put aside the fact that this man's brain is like, we need better bombs. Let me start by having pigeon pigeon cockpits in the rockets to steer them. How do you go from there to be like, oh, this isn't working out? Like, what is the next step to go to like, oh, you know what this could be though? Table tennis. Table tennis is the way to go. Where where does that mental leap happen? I don't understand the first step, much less the second step. I, you know what? I actually delighted in the in incongruity in yeah incongruity of that sentence so much. I didn't look further. I just really need those two things to exist. <laughs> like the consolation prize of not having pi- uh, pigeons pilot your bombs is that they can at least play ping pong. Were they playing ping pong with each other? Was he playing with them again? Like, there's what? video. Just I, we'll put I a link. need to know. Okay. Okay. My God, this man! Yeah, uh, yeah, it it is such a chaotic place in his mind. Yeah, I'll I'll put a link to the videos. It's really interesting. So, I mean, rats and pigeons are not the only animals he trained either. Uh, he was able to teach his daughter's cat to play piano, and he taught his beagle how to play hide and seek because the world is a giant rat box. He's feeling more and more like Doctor Doolittle. If Doctor <laughs> Doolittle was unafraid to put his animals inside of weapons for the army, that's the difference. Right. <laughs> Yeah, uh, around this time, he also invents a few other quirky machines. This is not Mm -hmm. the third bullet point, but I just want to touch on these quirky machines. One of them in particular, he invented what he called a teaching machine, which was designed to take the quote-unquote inefficiencies out of teaching, Mm. which as a former teacher, I can tell you, is impossible. Didn't work. (laughs) (laughs) There are several inefficiencies. Right. Um, Wait, what was the teaching machine like? You would just put a kid in a box and they'd ask like three times three. And if they press nine, they get a treat. And if not, they get an electric shock. Because that could kind of get behind this. It's actually very similar to that. They don't get shocked. (laughs) But his like format, the protocol for this teaching machine is later used in like AI learning. Like, yes, this works. No, this doesn't. But you're training the machine. Like, it's like a meta version of the teaching machine, teaching the machine. Okay, so it, so the reason 
he was able to bring this innovation to other places, but it didn't work in education. Is it sounds like he was afraid of the shock. If we just put the shock back <laughs> right. in this box, I have confidence this could work. This, right. this seems like a good plan. He invented all of those things, but the real capstone project of his work, this third one, is what gets him labeled, quote, the most dangerous psychologist of all time. Well, Freud was sitting there just giving cocaine <laughs> to people, and this guy's the most dangerous? Yes. And here's what he did. He wrote a novel based on his ideas of behaviorism. This book is called Walden 2. It describes a utopian and quasi-totalitarian society predicated on the principles of positive and negative reinforcements. This system of rewards and punishments would, Skinner proposed, make people into good citizens. And here's what he says about it. Quote, we can achieve a sort of control under which the controlled, though they are following a code much more scrupulously than was ever the case under the old system, nevertheless feel free. They are doing what they want to do, not what they are forced to do. That's the source of the tremendous power of positive reinforcement. There's no restraint and no revolt. By careful, cultural design, we control not the final behavior, but the inclination to behave, the motives, desires, the wishes. He's literally like, it's so easy. Society is so easy. If you just brainwash everybody, <laughs> right. if you brainwash them so they all want the right things, everybody's happy. Exactly. This book does not go over well. <laughs> no. Uh, astronomer and colleague J.K. Jessup wrote, quote, Skinner's utopian vision could change the nature of Western civilization more disastrously than the nuclear physicists and biochemists combined. This is more dangerous than the atomic bomb. Yeah. Skinner later goes on to write another book. This one is not fiction, but it has very similar themes called Beyond Freedom and Dignity. Oh, Beyond Freedom <laughs> and Dignity. Wow. Yeah, if you're going to get rid of some things in society, where do you start? Freedom and dignity. Move past those. Rest is easy. Rest is easy. Yeah, so he draws fire for implying that humans have no free will or individual consciousness and that they could simply be controlled by reward and punishment. Wow. So he took this life as a rat box thing a little further than I was expecting. A little further. This book gets worse reception than Walden 2. No. Wait, Walden 2 is in, like, Walden Pond by, like, yeah. Thoreau. He's like, but what? how is this at all related to, Utopia. like, the life on the pond in nature? Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Okay. So Noam Chomsky actually responds to this work, and it's his response that sets in motion the entire, like, cognitive psychology movement. We have B.F. Skinner and his behaviorism setting one precedent in psychology, and then from it is born this other school of thought, which is like, hey, actually thoughts and feelings really legitimately matter and we are not rats in a box. And Skinner's like, no, you just need to build a bigger box. <laughs> and interesting. And Chomsky's like, no, you, yeah, thoughts and feelings are not actually totally useless. Not totally interesting. useless. Interesting. Tell me more. If you can imagine, put yourself in this position, Skinner's work has a ton of unintended consequences. I, I can imagine. I can imagine. We've, we've been on a road that went went from baby boxes to rocket pigeons. So, like, yeah, I imagine we don't know where this is headed next. That's true. That seems real. Yeah, you can't really move from the world of animal training exercises in a lab and, like, these theoretical operant conditioning ideas to uh, the application of humans in real life. 
And to his benefit, B.F. Skinner didn't really try. But unfortunately, a much worse person did try to apply all of this conditioning to two really um, vulnerable populations. And I want to point this out. So somebody read these books and was like, I like this idea. I'm going to do this in real life. This person worked alongside Skinner, uh, sort of as a colleague, tangential colleague at UCLA. And this horrible man is named Dr. Lavas, and he credits his work as being inspired by B.F. Skinner. And this is the only sort of like uh, not so great legacy part that I want to touch on because I do think it's important. Like the rat boxes are funny, but it did have some pretty damaging consequences in the real world. So Dr. Lavas invented two things. And the first is called applied behavioral analysis. And applied behavioral analysis, or ABA, is a a system of behavior modification tools used on people who have autism. And it's used on autistic people as young as 18 months. And this conditioning is essentially what it results in is forced compliance to get them to be quote unquote normal. And these therapies, people can look them up, I'm not going to dive too deeply into them, are incredibly abusive. They take this idea of negative reinforcement, fully bastardize it. And then crank it up from like, oh, uh, this rat's not going to get it straight to I'm about to abuse a child, like all the way, fully all the way. Physical punishments like hitting, blasting 100 decibel sounds at children, and then like literally wiring the ground with electric shocks to get uh, compliance from autistic children. Wiring the ground with electric shocks, like for real, for real? For real, for real. For real, for real. Like they were trying to to get these two twins who had autism to show physical affection, make eye contact and hug them. And uh, when the kids were let into the room, if they did not immediately start moving toward uh, hugging the uh, experimenters or making eye contact, they would turn the electric shock on the floor and the kids would be shocked. And they, in their research papers, they were like, if you like unsurprisingly, the kids learned to hug us really fast. And they were like, no, they were just avoiding getting literally shocked with electricity. Yikes. Okay, so that's strike one. This dude sucks. The second thing that he invents is gay conversion therapy. Yes, so conversion therapy is predicated on the work of B.F. Skinner's opera conditioning. And for folks who don't know, gay conversion therapy is so dangerous, it's illegal in 20 states, uh, it's been increased with, or it's been associated with increased risk of suicide and has a, I'm going to air quotes here, heavy emphasis, success rate of like 0%. Again, none of that is a direct work of B.F. Skinner. I don't know how he felt about those practices. Again, so much of his work is theoretical. I I've, I don't think that he would have been on board with like, hey, it's at all costs we change behavior like this. But so much of his work was focused on people we would say are like neurotypical, right? Or like Mm -hmm. the norm. And so to have these theories applied to vulnerable or uh, to vulnerable groups or groups of people outside the quote unquote norm is just so dangerous. Yeah, like what it reminds me of is the um, very familiar kind of uh, audacity of a certain subset of tech bros, Mm. right? You have people who are like, I'm going to invent all these cool technology things that'll make the world better. And they're like, like Facebook's motto for a long time was, oh, we're just going to like 
connect the world's information and by being more connected, everybody will be better. And then like, that's, that is a very particular point of view from a very particularly privileged perspective. But then like immediately, if you bring these things, what happens is vulnerable people, people at the like edges of population, like with the, with the least power, all of a sudden, like have these mechanisms used against them. And they like are either subject to harassment and abuse or people are subject to misinformation or like all these things that are like, you know, just, you know, amplifying whatever current power structures you've got are used against people in an amplified way. And they're like, well, you know, and like it'll all work out for the best. And that's like a very like, oh, I just believe this because I'm not exposed to any of the downsides of it. And in the same way, like you write this book about how everything's going to be utopia when these, you know, we just condition everybody and then immediately where's the first place it gets put the people with the least power, like have suffering consequences immediately, either because they, you know, have autism or because they're considered defective by society. Totally. Yeah. So not ideal, not ideal. The good news is that none of B.F. Skinner's work actually makes it to the, um, to the applying to human beings at a large scale level. Um, and that's kind of, kind of bums him out. He goes to the end of his life, pretty upset that, uh, no one with political power will take his theories and start to write policy based on it. And I think what we can say definitively based on Dr. Lavas is that's a good thing. It's a good thing that no one with any yes. political power yes, it's a good thing. read Walton too and was like, this is how you create the best society. This is how we remove freedom and dignity from human beings. Perfect. Right. right. Um, but B.F. Burris really, really, really thought that his theories and his experiments and his strategies were the key to world peace. I personally do not think this would be the case. <laughs> no. Me, an empath, sensing that removing dignity <laughs> from people will not work. <laughs> Um, but that brings us to the conclusion of his three lesser known legacies. And so for the kamikaze pigeons, the baby chamber, the real weird sci-fi novel that promotes totalitarian control, as well as the unintended consequences of reducing the human experience to a set of conditioning devices, B.F. Skinner is not my hero. He's real funny though. (laughs) (laughs) I mean... Yeah, I, I I struggle to understand how this dude is simultaneously like understanding like, oh, yeah, yeah, very in a very like smart way. If you want to do this as a science, you need to like collect data and all these other things. Right. He like does this like very systematic thing and like builds these boxes and runs experiments. And then like it seems like he really it depends on whether you count the pigeons as being off the rails here, because that is not very scientific. That is like a very different kind of thing. He's not running experiments. He's like trying to get the pigeons to kamikaze people. But um, it feels like he really goes off the rails for the final time when he takes all of this science he's been doing. And he's like, now that I finally am respected in my field and I've been able to like establish some knowledge, the thing I'm going to do is go back and fulfill my lifelong fantasy of being a writer and writes a fucking totalitarian novel. And like, and he's like, now I'm justified in doing this. And in reality, he was still just a terrible writer who had no business writing and talking about what he thought the world should look like. Exactly. Yes. The deep insecurity. I mean, I'm, I'm personally 
familiar with deep insecurity and I've written zero books. So <laughs> the world That's what you're is missing. just waiting. It's waiting to find out what I'm going to do with pigeons once I get my yes. hands on, uh, on a typewriter. Well, if people would like to hear more about what we're going to do with pigeons or dogs or cats or any of the other animals that surround us, uh, looking for clues in our backlog, where can they find us? They can find us on social media at Your Heroes Pod or on our website at MeetYourHeroesPodcast.com. Yep. And please like, share, rate, review, spread the word, tell your friends. And until next week. Don't be a hero. Don't be a hero. Bye. Thank you.